And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. A little later in the hour, you're going to be hearing from best-selling author John Grogan talking about his memoir, The Longest Trip Home. But in part one of today's program, an unexpected treat and a well-timed treat at that. I'm going to be sharing with you an interview that I was able to record yesterday with another best-selling author, Mark Bowden, co-author with Matthew Teague of an extraordinary book called The Steal, the attempt to overturn the 2020 election and the people who stopped it. In this book, Mark Bowden and Matthew Teague uh, exhaustively examine uh, the efforts of President Donald Trump to overturn the results of the election in which his Democratic challenger, Joe Biden, defeated him. And the book in particular examines the courageous stance taken by many unsung heroes, lots of them Republicans, some of them even faithful Trump supporters who resisted President Trump's false claims of widespread election fraud and helped to secure, helped to safeguard uh, the integrity of this most recent presidential election. And the book culminates in the disturbing events which occurred uh, at our nation's capital uh, on January 6th, one year ago today. I've had several previous opportunities to speak with Mark Bowden, talking about just some of his uh, previous bestsellers, uh, such as Black Hawk Down, Finders Keepers, Guests of the Ayatollah, and The Best Game Ever. And again, this most recent book published by Atlantic Monthly Press is titled The Steal, The Attempt to Overturn the 2020 Election and the People Who Stopped It. So, Mark Bowden, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to The Morning Show. I've always enjoyed speaking with you in the past, and uh, this occasion is no different, although certainly the topic of this particular book, The Steal, is a lot less pleasant than some of the other books you have written in, in the past. One of the things that you do with this book is that through much of it, we are sort of ricocheting between someplace in Georgia and someplace in Pennsylvania and someplace in Arizona and someplace right here in Wisconsin. Uh, and I love the way that is set up, but it also makes the book, in a sense, complicated. And I think it was probably really complicated to, uh, for you to write. <laughs> uh, tell us about that choice to uh, shape so much of the book in this particular way. Well, it's a good question, Greg. And, you know, it's a complicated story. You're right, because the way we conduct elections in America is complicated. We don't run them out of a federal building in Washington, D.C. They're run by your neighbors and my neighbors in every county and every state all across the country. So we set out to try to tell the story of how this election unfolded and how the effort to overturn the election unfolded, not in Washington among the big name players, but actually in the neighborhoods and the counties throughout the six swing states, and Wisconsin was one of them, uh, and talk about the people whose lives were turned upside down in this effort. Those who, in a sense, stood by the results of the election uh, despite such fierce uh, ob- objection from, from, from so many. At one point in the book, you call these, uh, these national elections a biannual miracle. And, and go on to say holding them, that is, these national uh, elections, uh, is an ongoing chore for every jurisdiction in the country and one of its core responsibilities. Uh, I think that's something that is so 
largely hidden to the general public, but that's something you've examined very closely. Before you wrote this book, how much did you know about this complicated web that is uh, behind our national elections? Well, Greg, I think like most people, I had only the faintest notion of how elections were con- conducted. I probably, if press could have described it as some, you know something that's carried out at the local level, but I didn't fully appreciate the complexity of it until I researched this book. In Delaware County, for instance, just which is a neighboring county to where I live in Pennsylvania, there are something like 300 separate polling places in that county alone. And each of those polling places has to hire a staff. They have to get machines set up. They have to have allow observers in. And so when you multiply that by every county in America, you're talking about literally tens of thousands of people who are carrying out this election, and many of them with different rules and regulations, with different machines. So it is really quite amazing when you look at it closely how it even is pulled off. One of the central themes of your book and of this story of the steel is that of distrust and the deep level of distrust or mistrust which President Trump uh, fostered in, in the minds of so many people. And one of the things your book kind of explains is how when there is that high level of distrust or mistrust uh, in such a, a, a wide swath of the American public that then when certain things would happen that at a simple glance might seem uh, like just an irregularity, they would take on ominous uh, undertones because of this sort of atmosphere of distrust. And you really outline a, a number of different specific examples. Can you, can you choose one that you think is a good example of this that helped kind of uh, fan the flames of this distrust in, in the election? Sure. I mean, the grounds were laid for distrust uh, for years by Donald Trump and by some of his allies. And I think it's perfectly natural and human. All of us know people who can't disagree with you without thinking that you're not only mistaken, but that you're evil, <laughs> that there's some, some ulterior motive that you have that's really sleazy. And I think that that holds true for election. In Delaware County, <clears throat> Pennsylvania, I wrote about Leah Hoops who formed an organization at Donald Trump's behest to observe the election. And what she was really doing is setting out to find instances of fraud. And I think just as scientists have something called confirmation bias, where if you want a certain outcome of an experiment, you find what you're looking for. She went to her local precinct, and it was at a senior citizen center, and they were having trouble in the morning on Election Day scanning some of the paper ballots in the machines because they had no experience with these new machines. So they straightened it out after a few hours. They turns out they had a bad batch of ballots that they, and they had to replace them. But the, what she saw, what Leah Hoops saw was a bunch of incompetent people who had been deliberately put in place in her precinct to slow things down and screw up the election count. She attributed it to something she called a Nazi plot to undermine the election. That was just the first of the many things that she saw. But you can see how her interpretation of something quite simple and easily understood, she turned it into something that was, you know, an example of exactly what she was looking for. Right. And this, of course, played out 
in various ways all across the country. I thought one of the most interesting stories which you recount is of something that happened in Arizona in which uh, an erroneous claim was made about Sharpies versus ballpoint pens and the notion that voters were being deliberately given Sharpies which would make their ballots uh, impossible to read. And one can understand how, if that was true, I mean... People should be outraged about that. But the fact is that it wasn't true. And, uh, and that is such an interesting example of what was going on uh, uh, in, 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 the, in the wake of this election. It's true. I mean, and, and I think in the case of the Sharpie episode, it's so easy to disprove. I mean, mark up a ballot with a Sharpie, run it through a machine. Did it scan it? Yes. Didn't it? No. And that answers the question. But nobody went to the trouble of actually testing out this theory. Instead, it was just broadcast nationwide. It turned out that the reason why the county election officials were encouraging the use of Sharpies over ballpoint pens is that the ballpoint pens would leave residue of ink on the ballots, which would gum up the machines and slow up the process. Sharpies, it turned out, actually worked better than ballpoint pens. So they were trying to encourage voters to use Sharpies. And this was, of course, interpreted uh, by a fellow named Marco Trakovic, uh, as a plot, which he posted in, online, and it, it ended up creating a real stink in Arizona with a lot of people just believing it was true. We're speaking with Mark Bowden, co-author of this new book called The Steel. Uh, your book is, is not only about what was happening kind of on the ground across the country, but of course about President Trump and his relentless efforts to sow this sense of distrust about uh, the election results. Uh, The third chapter is titled The Blunderbuss Strategy, and it's a perfect word, but it's also a word that some people are not going to understand at a glance exactly what it means. Describe this word blunderbuss and why it is such a perfect adjective for the strategy of President Trump and his closest advisors. Well, thanks, Greg. You know, a blunderbuss was a colonial era precursor to the shotgun. It was a weapon which wasn't at all accurate, but it blasted a lot of shot. And so that's what I think Trump and Giuliani and their allies were trying to do. It didn't really matter if any of the specific claims of fraud they made were true, so much as, as it mattered that there were a lot of them. So they included, for instance, a woman in Arizona who saw the signature of Satan in voting spreadsheets and a a man in Pennsylvania who claimed that up to half of the ballots cast in his county were fake Biden ballots. Both of these things are either silly or easily disproved, but that wasn't their point. Their idea was to create a cloud of suspicion that would undermine Americans' belief in the voting system. And I think, you know, the strategy is that if you throw up enough things, that even a reasonable person begins to think, well, there must be something wrong here just because there are so many allegations of fraud. I think that was the essence of it. Hmm. You tell us that President Trump's strategy was on three levels, popular, legal, and political. And he had enormous success with the first, but uh, pretty much miserably failed Uh, in the other two, and especially on the legal front. You write at one point, on the Internet or in the press, you could say anything, but lawyers who wasted judges' times risked legal jeopardy. In other words, 
there's a huge difference between trying to just kind of spread general distrust versus taking this up in in the in the legal arena. There, it seems that the Trump administration was uh, very very poorly managed and uh, and 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 prepared for what that kind of battle would mean. That's right, Greg. I mean, you you look at it; they lost every one of the sixty one lawsuits that they filed around the country. And if you begin looking closely at these lawsuits, they didn't just lose in many cases. They were excoriated by judges, including Republican judges, including Trump-appointed judges, who were insulted and outraged that their time was being wasted by allegations that were clearly false or which could readily be disproved. And so they had little patience for the blunderbuss strategy in the courts. Ultimately, it was on the popular front that President Trump uh, scored the greatest success. And, of course, in many respects, that those efforts culminated in the events that occurred on January 6th, 2021. One of the things that your book does is to try to help us understand the nature of what we saw unfold on our TV screens on January 6th. And in some respects, your book is, is calling us not to not to disregard that and not to take it very, very seriously, but to understand it in context that there are other things that went on before January 6th that in a sense were a a much more powerful and, and tangible threat to our democracy than that event on January 6th was. Can you explain that distinction? Sure. I think that the thrust of the main thrust of Trump's effort was to try to get state and local officials to falsify the election. He failed on every front, in every state, in every county. January 6th was a last-stop, desperate act, where basically after the courts and after the legislatures around the country had failed to be bullied or cajoled, he turned to the mob, and he set them loose on on the Capitol. It was more of a temper tantrum, in my opinion, than it was an insurrection. That you know, demonstration or riot at the Capitol had no more chance of overthrowing the American government than the hippies had in 1967 when they tried to levitate the Pentagon. You know, it was a terrible, tragic episode and a shameful one in our history. And I think the people responsible for it should be prosecuted. Many of them are. But I think we exaggerate it if we call it an attempt to overthrow the American government. It was a temper tantrum by a president who had lost in every way. One thing you say that probably needs to be restated, and you say it's something that actually is rarely noted, fraud on the scale alleged in this election would have been glaringly apparent. And it also claims that there was this nationwide scheme, and and such a notion, in, in your words, is utterly preposterous, that something like that could have been created and seamlessly carried out. It is preposterous. It is just because of the decentralized nature of elections in America. And we rewrite about these folks, and you mentioned yourself, Greg, how many there are in different states all over the country, none of whom have ever met each other, all of whom, most of whom work as volunteers. And the idea that somehow this many people in these disparate locations all across the United States would get together and conspire is just ludicrous. And it didn't happen. But the other thing, the point that you made, first is how obvious it would be. I mean, we know the voting patterns in America right down 
to individual neighborhoods, which is why when they gerrymander districts, they can draw these weird maps that reach out and grab this neighborhood or that neighborhood because they know how the vote is going to go. We know how that vote is going to go. So any huge fraud would be so obvious because the normal voting patterns in a county, in a state, in the country would suddenly be completely out of whack. And we noticed the whole world went nuts because 3,000 votes were accidentally put in the wrong column in Antrim County, Michigan. If something that small set off a worldwide alarm, you can imagine what switching millions of votes would do. Last question. Your book is dedicated to the real patriots. Who are the real patriots? The real patriots are the state and local officials, some of them elected, some of them appointed, some of them judges, who withstood tremendous pressure from Trump, from from lawyers, from from mobs, uh, and did their duty and stood by their uh, country and and refused to sacrifice their integrity, and they did the right thing, which is deliver an accurate vote count representing the will of the people. Mark Bowden, thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. Bye-bye. And to finish out, I want to read to you a couple of paragraphs that come from the fifth chapter of Mark Bowden's book, The Steel. Chapter 5 is titled, The Popular Front. In the weeks and months after the January 6th riot, it was labeled an insurrection. If so, it was a sloppy, ill-planned, and tragic one, but also buffoonish, a mob with a horned, spear-carrying faux barbarian chanting gibberish in the U.S. Senate chamber, and combat-clad rebels rifling through lawmakers' desks at random looking for evidence. It had no more chance of overthrowing the U.S. government than hippies in 1967 had trying to levitate the Pentagon. The real insurrection had already played out in the months prior, in the courtrooms and streets of the six swing states. Led by Trump and his coterie of sycophants, it was only slightly better organized than the mob, but considerably more calculated and dangerous. And it failed. Distrust. If there was anything like genius in Donald Trump's methods, this was it. Democracy depends on that modicum of trust it takes to bring competing parties together after an election to govern. Without it, there can be no majority rule. With the vote itself discredited, the will of the people is sacrificed to a mob of self-styled patriots who have decided that they and only they speak for everyone. The opposite of democracy. From the day he entered public life, Trump had chipped away at the vote, that cornerstone. He sowed and planted and nurtured widespread distrust of many things, of government, of institutional and academic expertise of any kind, of mainstream media, of judges, of whole industries. But most often and most insistently, he chipped away at trust in elections. And when he lost, he mobilized that distrust to try and stay in power. This failed stopped by the integrity of hundreds of obscure Americans from every walk of life, state and local officials, judges, and election workers. Many of them were Republicans. Some were Trump supporters. They refused to accept his slander of themselves, their communities, and their workers. And they refused to betray their sworn duty to their office and their country. They were the true patriots. They saw the steel 
for what it was, a fraud on the United States of America. The book again is The Steal, the attempt to overturn the 2020 election and the people who stopped it, co-authored by Matthew Teague and my morning show guest Mark Bowden. There is a book signing with the authors coming up at Milwaukee's Boswell Book Company, 2559 North Downer Avenue, on Thursday, January 13th at 7 p.m. Go to boswellbooks.com or call them at 414-332-1181 for more information. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg.